right. Well, before we have our reading today, I want to sort of introduce the scene a bit. Um, the reading that I'm going to be focusing on in my preaching is part of a much longer story, so I want to sort of set the scene. Last week, we looked at uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, where there was this kind of grumbling or this uh, kind of murmuring had emerged because in the daily food distribution, some of the, the widows, the, the uh, Hellenic widows, were getting missed out or neglected. And so the, the church, led by the apostles, quickly kind of whipped into action and they set up seven men to make sure that the food distribution was going well. And one of the men named among them was Stephen, who was said to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And directly after this setting up of these seven men, we find that Stephen, in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, verse 8, was doing great signs and wonders. This is still, of course, in Jerusalem. And Stephen got into some disputes with some of the people from the synagogue who didn't like what he was saying. And in verse 10, it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they arrested him on the following charges. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6. They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. This holy place being the temple. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The high priest then questions Stephen, says, is this true? And Stephen takes the opportunity to preach the gospel. He tells the story of God's people from Abraham through Moses to David and Solomon up until the present moment. He in particular focuses on the presence of God and the encounter of God with his people, the appearance of God to Abraham in the wilderness and to Moses in the burning bush, for instance. And we're going to pick up, Logos is going to come and read for us, in verse 44 of chapter 7. So, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. The first person to be killed for his faith and declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say first martyr because death for the faith would become, let's say, common in the early history of the church. All of the apostles, with the exception of John, would eventually die for their witness in cruel ways. Countless Christians under the Roman Empire would be thrown to the lions or killed in the arena 
crucified or tortured. And this went on for 300 years or so until the empire, I guess, converted to Christianity and the persecutions came to an end. A church father named Tertullian wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Rebecca, can you put that picture up, please? Throughout Christian history, our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers and grandparents in the faith have died for their witness to Jesus. There are thousands of stories we could share from history. And this continues today in many places. Some of you will know about Open Doors International. We had someone from them come and talk to us a few years ago. They, their ministry is to support and to equip and resource people in uh, situations of persecution and, and severe oppression. They estimate that one in seven Christians worldwide experience persecution. More than 360 million Christians suffer very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. From Stephen through to today, and the picture here, if you don't remember this or if you've never seen that, is from um, several years ago now, uh, where some Egyptian Coptic Christians were captured by ISIS and filmed being beheaded for their faith. You can bring the picture down now if you want. What was so offensive that got Stephen killed? Why did they kill him? He certainly put things pretty harshly. He was pretty rude to them. He said, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. That means, I guess, like unholy, unpure. They, they weren't listening or they didn't have God's um, truth in their hearts. He accuses them of betraying and murdering the righteous one, which he, by whom he means Jesus, and of failing to obey God's law. That's all pretty harsh stuff. Someone got up here this morning and said to us, you guys have all abandoned the faith. You haven't been preaching from Scripture. You haven't been obedient to Jesus. We would be like, whoa, what's, what? But the central crime that Stephen committed in their eyes was this. Remember in my little preamble to the reading Logos, this was the original charge that got Stephen brought up on. 
They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then in chapter 7, just before he's taken to be stoned to death, he says, in verses 45 and 47, So it was until the day, days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find him a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. This dwelling place, this house, is talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And we cannot overstate how important and central and serious the temple was in the heart of the life of the people of God. That was where the presence of God dwelt and lived. It was where the people could go to offer sacrifice, to atone for their sins, to, um, to make themselves ritually pure. It was, it was so central, it was so identified with God that it was blasphemy to criticize that temple. So... Solomon built this house, this temple for him. And then Stephen says, yet. And it's always, you know, you sh- we always pay attention when someone says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yet, or but, you know, like, um, I'm not going to give an example. Um, he says, yet. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. This phrase calls into question their most holy sight and the most precious promise that God would be with them. And now he quotes scripture to back it up. He quotes from Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, this is in the voice of the Lord, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my place of rest? Did I not make all these things? Now, of course, he's right about that. God can't be contained only within a building. And his hearers would have known that scripture and agreed with that scripture They would not have doubted that God was the God of all and that, as Isaiah says, heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. But Stephen, having had the revelation of Jesus, is applying this verse to show that something fundamental has changed about the manner in which God relates to his people. He's applying these verses from Isaiah to show as true what Jesus said would be the case. Indeed, that's what, in the end, arguably got Jesus arrested. They'd wanted to arrest and catch him and kill him for a long time, but it was his preaching in and judgment of the temple 
that got him caught in the end. Stephen is saying, in light of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit pours out on all flesh, there's a new temple, one not made by human hands. How do we make sense of this for ourselves? Well, historically, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the temple, the, the anger that, the, that Stephen's persecutors felt, we're not likely to face that exact anger in the world. We're not going to be persecuted because we critique the temple. But let's step back a bit. I want to think about um, what it means to be a martyr. When I was 12, I had a dream. And... uh, I'd had some experiences in my younger life which I knew in my heart of hearts to be God. But when I was 12, I was at a point of sort of decision. And I, I knew that God was calling me to serve him and follow him. But even at 12 years old, I was terrified of that. Didn't want to do it. And uh, it was always a wrestle for me. This was the the wrestle, was whether or not I would go to church with mum or I'd stay home with dad. And one Saturday night, I had a dream. There was a bunch of us in this sort of bus, and we were heading in a certain direction. And I looked around, and now this bit is a bit odd, but I used to play this computer game Right, called Dark Rain, and you had these characters in it called martyrs. Now, the kind of twisted part of this is these martyrs, this was a fighting computer game, these martyrs were essentially suicide bombers. Right? Well, I knew what they were, and I knew that we on this little bus, we were these, these martyrs, these characters being taken off. And then we got out of the van thing or the bus or whatever and we were in my bathroom because it's a dream and um, and we got handed a 20 centimeter ruler you know like the plastic one we you know they were kind of rare like mainly 30 centimeter rulers standard but we had some 20 centimeter ones we got handed that and we had to breathe into it like a breathalyzer and then the and then the sort of this like thing you know I don't know, like a thermometer almost like, you know, and we breathed into it and then we all got kind of sucked up into the air. What a weird dream. I woke up and somehow I knew the question that had been laid before me by that dream was, 
Am I going to give my life for Jesus or not? Right? Um, it is kind of comical, but you've got to understand, serious 12-year-old little Mark, this was serious. So I went to church with mum that day. Now, I sort of carried on going for a little while, and then I fell off the page again, stopped going. Now, that dream left an impression on me, okay, that to be a Christian, to be clear, Christian martyrdom is not being a suicide bomber, right? But it left an impression on me that being a Christian meant laying my entire life down for God. It was not a portion of my life. It was not Sunday, and it was not uh, a sort of helpful thing to prop me up. To be a Christian meant to give my life completely, even to be willing to die for my faith. And I've always had in my mind this thought about whether or not, if it came to it, I would choose Christ or to remain alive. If someone was to hold a knife to my throat and say, denounce Jesus or I'm going to take your head off. Silly as the dream was, it's, it's sort of implanted in me an understanding that that's how serious the Christian faith is. Now, praise God, we don't live in a time or a place in New Zealand where that's a threat. Stephen is called the first martyr for the faith. And what we usually mean by the word martyr is someone who dies for their faith, who dies for Jesus. But the word martyr literally means witness. Stephen, the first martyr, was the first witness of Jesus to be put to death. And the first to witness unto Jesus, even unto death. He was arrested for preaching the gospel and for performing signs and, and wonders in Jesus' name. And even in death, even in the manner in which he died, Stephen bears witness to Christ. Because you look at what he says when Stephen dies. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just as Christ on the cross had said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus from the cross had said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. To be a witness for Jesus includes the proclamation of the gospel, telling the story, declaring the truth that Jesus is Lord. It means the demonstration of the gospel in performing signs and wonders and acts of good uh, for others like man, uh, managing the food distribution for the widows. But it's not just imitation of Jesus like mimicry. It's not just pretending to be like Jesus. It's to become like Jesus. The martyrs that are celebrated in the church often viewed their deaths as somehow participating in the death of Christ. And there are stories of some of them going, singing songs while the lions came forward to eat them. They considered it an honor to be put to death for their witness to Christ. Because that would most supremely bear witness to the kind of God that Jesus is. So what about us? As I said, I'm truly thankful that we don't live in a time and place where being a Christian risks our literal lives. But here's a quote for you from George Whitfield, who was a Methodist evangelist in the 1700s. He says, we must all have the spirit of martyrdom, though we may not all die as martyrs. And that is because every one of us is called to be a witness for Christ. We're called to that by declaring him, by, being, by telling people about Jesus openly and honestly and joyfully. Even if that does bring opposition. And I don't want to belittle the opposition that can be felt. Because if you're in a workplace full of non-Christians, it can be difficult to bear witness as a Christian. It can be awkward. You can get yourself into conflict. We're called to share and bear witness to Jesus anyway. And to lay down our dignity, our good standing, our reputation. Not by being belligerent or rude, but by telling people about Jesus. We're called to bear witness to Jesus by demonstration. By praying for people, by serving people. And we're called to bear witness to Jesus in our imitation of him. The question I've always asked myself is if 
in the horrible situation I were to be told Jesus or your head? My question is, would I? I can't stand here and boldly proclaim because of all that I've said that I know how I would act. I hope that I would choose Christ. And so what I've come to understand or come to think is that if I hope to be the sort of person who would literally be willing to die for Christ, what I must be is day by day a person who lays his life down for one another. A person who does not consider his own wealth or benefit or dignity or whatever else above that of another. I need to be someone who whatever sphere of influence, whatever part of my life it is, whether it's here as a, as a pastor and as a friend to you all or at home with Ainsley and the kids, am I a person who lays his life down for others? The beautiful thing is, If we become that, no matter what end we come to in this life, we will have grown in our witness to Christ. As John says, we know what love is. Christ laid his life down. And so too we also ought to lay our lives down for one another. And in that, John says, we are perfected in love. And there is no fear in love. And if we're perfected in love, then there is no fear in the day of judgment. And if we have no fear in the day of judgment, then we have no fear of death. If we become the people who lay our lives down for one another and for those out in the community, we become more like the sorts of people who would rather die and bear witness to Christ than live and deny him. We're going to finish with one last song. Do you guys want to come up? And... Um, I just invite you during the song to take the opportunity to uh, consider where you might lay yourself down for another. Lord God, it's a privilege 
to lay our lives down for you daily, God. And it's a privilege for us to humble ourselves before you in a way that helps us to lay our lives down for one another, God. To put down our pride and our need for self-success and self-exalting, God. Thank you that you've given us the perfect example of what it looks like to love in truth, and that's Jesus, Lord. I just pray that you help us in the weeks to come, God, to notice opportunities for us to lay our lives down for one another and for you. Challenge us this week to come, God, that we may act as Jesus has. We thank you for this message, Lord, and I just pray that your words would stick to our hearts, God, that they would last longer than just this morning or today, Lord, that they would last for years to come and help us to build our lives um, in a way that's pointing to you and that is for heaven's cause. So I just, yeah, I bless the week to come for everyone in this room right now, God. And I just pray that you would continue to move powerfully through our lives, Lord. I thank you that you're moving and that your spirit is with us wherever we go, God. In your son Jesus' name, amen.